Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us and being with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. And as Pastor Ted said earlier, I hope that you have already been warmly greeted by our church family and that you have uh, had an opportunity to, to say hello to somebody else who's sitting around you. And we are excited that you are here today. And I just also want to echo what he said earlier. If you're here and you're a guest, uh, maybe this is your first time, we want to invite you to lunch. Come on, eat, eat on us. We've got, something, we've got something prepared over there. We would love to get to spend a little more time with you uh, that way. And so we do want to invite you to come and be a part of our Stepping in the Waters luncheon. If you've got your Bibles this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2, and we're going to continue our study through this gospel that we have embarked upon a, a few weeks ago. And, and I just want to say this morning, as believers, we are truly blessed to have copies of God's Word, to be able to have them in front of us that we can open and be able to read together. We are, we are truly blessed. There are many places in this world today that do not have that ability. And so for the fact that we do, we are blessed. We're also blessed to be able to, to study God's Word verse by verse and, and, and paragraph by paragraph as it is allowed to speak to us. And, and, and so I, I want you to understand that as believers who can come together without any fear of reprisal, that we are a blessed group of people to be able to do that this morning and to be able to open God's Word and read it together. You know, as I studied our passage for this last week, I was reminded of something that happened to me uh, when I went to my 25-year high school class reunion. I did that a few years ago. I won't tell you how many. But I went there, and, and one, of my, one of my best friends was uh, there with us. We graduated together, and my wife was there. And, and I was standing there, and we were trying to figure out who all these old people were that was in this room. And it was good that they had name tags because that was the only way we'd know. But then I, I noticed there was a girl who was coming up. She was a woman now. She was coming up to talk to me. And, and, and I recognized her. And I, I remembered her because we had had a number of, of classes together in high school. And, and I remembered her being a very uh, a, a nice, a sweet, talented, smart girl. That was my recollection of her. She, uh, she and I had connected together via Facebook years before. And and so I had been able to sort of loosely keep up with a little bit of what had gone on in her life. But as she made her way up to see me, it was obvious that she had something she wanted to say. And, and, and I was okay with that. She came up and, and she said this. She said, Craig, I just wanted to tell you that when we connected on Facebook a few years ago and I read that you had become a pastor, I could not have been more shocked. Now, I want you to know that made me feel really good. Um, it's just the sort of thing you want said to you when you're standing next to your wife at a 25-year class reunion. She went on to say this. She said, from what I remember of you in high school, I really couldn't believe that you had gone in the ministry. And then she added this. I guess God really can change people. Now, I'll be frank with you, my feelings were hurt just a little bit. It's obvious that my recollections of her were much better than her recollections of me. I kind of felt the sting of her comments, though I feel pretty confident that she didn't intend to hurt my feelings. But you know what she said was right. The truth is, for many reasons, 
I was a very unlikely candidate to become a pastor and a preacher of the gospel. But the even greater truth that she spoke that day, truer than perhaps she even realized, was when she said this, God really can change people's lives. We're going to see that in our text this morning as we look at really only two verses from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Got your Bibles open. Hear the word of God this morning. Then he, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And he passed by, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose, and he followed him. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for what it reveals to us about ourselves and our absolute need of you. We've already sung about that this morning. We've already heard about the blood that reaches to where we are and saves us. We've already heard the children sing about how wonderful it is that we have God's word as a gift to us. And now, Father, I pray that we would take all of those things into consideration and now be able to push out all of the things that might be distracting our, our minds from being able to focus on your word this morning and just ponder and consider this text. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, at the risk of sounding overtly obvious, it's, it's actually quite true, at least it is for me, that whenever I'm reading through Scripture, Jesus just doesn't always do things the way that I expect or I would think that I would do them if I were in his situation. You know, I'm always amazed at how Jesus reacted, how he responded, how he dealt with, with, with crowds, how he dealt with individuals, how he conducted himself with, throughout the Gospels. And we get an example of just how much perhaps Jesus uh, confronts the way that we would normally do things in this passage today. I like what Philip Graham Riken has written. He has noted that in a general sense, when it came time to choose his disciples, Jesus did not go out and find 12 theologically trained, morally upright, spiritually disciplined men. Instead, what we find is that he gathered a motley crew of everyday sinners who hardly seemed like the kind of men who would set the world on fire. Speaking specifically of Levi, John MacArthur writes of him in his book entitled Twelve Ordinary Men, which is about the disciples. He says this, he says, that in all likelihood, none of the twelve was more notorious as a sinner than Levi. And the question we may ask is, why is that? Well, the reason is, is because as our text tells us, Levi, who is more commonly known to us as Matthew, was a tax collector. Now, in the time of Christ, a tax collector was considered a scum, the scum of Jewish society. They were absolutely hated. One became a tax collector through the process of what is called tax farming. That is a process in which a Jew would turn in bids to the Roman government and, and say that they would uh, bid a certain amount in order to be able to collect the taxes from a particular region. 
And so that anything that they took in over and above the amount that they had bid was theirs to keep. Now, as you can imagine, a situation like that and a system like that inevitably fostered exploitation. It fostered extortion. In fact, when folks couldn't pay the, the, the taxes, which is a lot of cases that they were charged exorbitant amounts, when they couldn't pay that amount, then the tax collectors were there to loan them the money. But when they did, they charged them an extraordinarily high interest rate, which only further just brought the people into their greedy little grasps. And so as a result of that, tax collectors were considered traitors to their own people. They were considered thieves and cheats by their own countrymen. And as Kent Hughes has written, they were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. He goes on to write that because of their reputation as liars and as cheats, tax collectors were not allowed to serve as judges or as witnesses in a court session. They were even excommunicated out of the synagogue and the temple. They couldn't even come into the normal place where men were able to go and worship. They were considered the lowest of the lowest. The picture that I want to get across to you is that in that day, a tax collector like Levi was someone who was a hated social outcast and exile. He was barred from the courts, he was barred from the temple and the synagogues, and he was barred from normal and respectable society. In many ways, we might even recall that He's, the, the tax collector was much like the leper that we studied a couple of weeks ago. The leper in Jewish society was also relegated to live outside the city. He was someone who no one wanted to come in contact with and no one wanted to have any, uh, any kind of a, a, a relationship. But the striking difference between the leper and Levi was that the leper was an unwilling social outcast. No leper would have volunteered to have been given the disease of leprosy so that he would have to go outside the camp. Levi, on the other hand, was someone who with his eyes wide open had willfully chosen a profession that would send him there. In choosing his profession to be a tax collector, he had basically said, I'm willing to pay the price. I'll leave the circle. I'll go live outside the people of God. In willfully becoming a tax collector, Levi made the decision and pursued a path that he knew would cause him to be a social outcast. But what we see here is that Jesus, just as he had done with a leper, he reaches out to Levi. And he looks at him and says, follow me. Now let me ask you, does that strike you? Are you a little amazed by that? Sometimes I think we read Scripture too fast. We don't slow down, and we don't consider the words and the meaning behind it, the ramifications that come along with that. Think about it. In light of the social standing that Levi had, do you not at least wonder for a moment what Jesus is doing picking him to be part of his band of disciples? Well, what that tells us and what our text shows us leads me to the first point that I provided for you on your outline this morning. And the first point that you have there is this. Jesus' call to follow him is extended to even the most despised and willful outcasts and sinners. 
Think about that. You know, to get our hands around just how astonishing this call to Levi is, let's not forget the context. The immediate context is verse 13. Verse 13 sets up verse 14 for us. And there we read that after Jesus had healed the paralytic there in the, the city of Capernaum that we looked at last week, it says there that he went down by the Sea of Galilee. And it was while he was there down by the sea that we find Jesus encountering this tax collector named Levi. Now, Mark is the only gospel writer who highlights the location where this encounter between Jesus and Levi take place. But I think it's an important piece of information because it is there that he shares uh, what the, the deeper understanding really to me about how unlikely a disciple Levi actually would have been. The, King, the New King James that I read for you earlier says that Levi was sitting at the tax office. That may, that may provide us with a little bit of a, a wrong view of, where, of how that whole process took place. Levi didn't, li didn't reside in a building that had an office inside of it so that people had to come there and, and pay their tax bill. It's not like the, 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 the tax bills that we would think about today. No, Levi would have had a booth that he would have been portable and he could have taken with him and he could have set it up and he often did in, 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 in very highly traveled and, and, and commercial areas because he was more like a toll booth operator. When people passed by, he could charge a tax and he could charge as much as he, or as little as he wanted. And so it would have been to his advantage to go to places where there were a lot of people coming in and out and going. Not only that, but as some would say that the tax collectors also would, would charge a tariff or they would put a tax on the goods that were coming and going and being sold. So the Sea of Galilee would have been a perfect place for, Matt, for Levi to go and set up his tax booth because there would have been a lot of traffic in and out of there and what else would there have been but a lot of fish that they were taking, the fishermen had gotten and they were taking to sell into other parts of the Galilean region. And so it would have been a very lucrative, a very smart place for Levi to set up his tax booth to charge the, the tolls and to charge the taxes. But can you imagine how the fishermen in that area felt about Levi? Can you imagine the things they said to him every time that they had to stop and pay him, not only for their travel, but for the fish that they had as well? Can you imagine the bitterness and the hatred that would have welled up in their hearts every time they had looked at this stinking traitor who constantly had his hand out and was squeezing them for an extra dime? Here's a question. Can you think of any fishermen that might have been with Jesus that day when he encountered Levi? We know of four of them. He had just called them to be his disciples back in chapter 1. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen who Jesus had called to be his disciples. But nevertheless, when they see Jesus stop and talk to Levi, it's quite likely that these men had all had personal dealings with him. And it's also quite likely that these four fishermen turned disciples of Jesus would have had even less use for Levi than they would for other tax collectors because for them it was probably personal. Well, here's what I want you to notice. None of that affects Jesus. It's true that when the crowd saw Levi, they saw a tax collector, they saw a scum, they saw someone to be hated and avoided. It's also likely true that when the disciples saw Levi... They saw someone who had cheated them and stolen from them. But what is amazingly true is that when Jesus saw Levi, he looked past all of that. 
He looked past the categories that we often put people in. He saw a man. He saw a man who would become one of his disciples. Now, we might wonder to ourselves, well, wasn't there someone else he could have called? Wasn't there another fisherman or two? Maybe there was some kind of nobleman there in the area of Capernaum that he could have selected. But friends, what that tells us is, is that in Jesus' calling of Levi, it tells us that he doesn't go around choosing good people. Jesus is not in the habit of going around calling worthy people. Rather, Jesus chooses and calls outcasts sinners. He chooses and calls unworthy and unqualified sinners just like you and just like me. So Jesus calls Levi and he says, follow me. Now, as I've attempted to show, the call to Levi is amazing in and of itself because it proves to us that Jesus his call to follow him extends to even the most despised and the willful outcasts and sinners. But I want you to notice that what we see next is also amazing. Because notice what Mark says. Jesus says, follow me, and then he writes this, so he arose and followed him. In his account of this incident, Luke says this. He says, Levi left all, rose up, and followed him. Don't miss the importance of that. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus approaching Simon Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he went to them and he said the same thing. He said, follow me. And there we read that immediately they left their nets, they left their boats, they put everything up, and they just started on the road with Jesus. Well, I want you to know Levi does the same thing. He responds the same way. There's no hesitation. There's no attempt to delay so that he could pack up his belongings. No attempt to say, hey, let me get all the money that I've collected today and put in this bag because I can use that to help further our, our, our dealings with people. No, we don't see any of that. As Luke says, he left all, rose up, and followed. In my reading this week, the repeated theme that I came across was that for Levi to do what he did meant that he was actually severing himself from his former lifestyle and former way of living. You see, if Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John, if they decided this whole following Jesus thing really wasn't in their best interest, they had the option of going back and being fishermen again. They could go back and find, they could buy new boats, they could buy new nets if they had to. They could go back to fishing. But Levi, if he left his tax booth there was always somebody who was willing to come in behind him and cheat and bilk the people for everything that they could. Some pariah would have come in and taken his spot the next day. He wouldn't have had a job to go back to. Not only that, but because he was a tax collector and because he was so hated by his fellow countrymen, who would ever hire him? Consequently, when Jesus looked Levi in the eyes and he said, follow me. Well, Levi was faced with the most monumental and costliest decision of his life. Which leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning on your outline. The second point is this. Answering the call to follow Jesus requires abandoning the old way of living and pursuing him. Abandoning the old way of living, and pursuing Him. 
Remember, remember that Jesus had been down by the sea, been teaching the people there in verse 3. And we've noted again and again in our study thus far of Mark that the, that the summarized teaching of Jesus really is what Mark has told us back in chapter 1, verse 15, and that is Jesus preached a gospel that was built around repentance and faith. And what I want you to know is that in Levi's response to Jesus' call to follow him, we see both of those elements exemplified. When Levi got up and left all to follow Jesus, he demonstrated repentance. Repentance means to turn away from sin. Repentance means to turn away from self and self-centered pursuits. It means to let go of all other gods, and it means to, to, to walk away from all the other attractions in our lives that vie for our attention and our worship. Repentance means to stop the progression that you have been on thus far in your life and to turn around and go the other direction, pursuing Christ. And that's exactly what we see as the response of Levi here in this passage. Levi also demonstrated faith in Jesus. As a tax collector, his confidence had been in his possessions. His practice had been to follow the money and to pursue wealth and to pursue fortune. And that's what dominated his life. But in following Jesus, he gave up the sinful structures that had led to his financial advantage. And in doing so, he demonstrated that his hope and his confidence was now in the one that he followed, was now in Jesus. And so understanding that, let me add to that these words. When you read this account of the call to discipleship of Levi the tax collector, you cannot harmonize that with the message of discipleship that is often heard and preached in our society today. You see, it is common in our society today, either explicit or implicitly taught, that all you need to do is just add a little Jesus to your existing life. That that's really all he wants from his followers. You can continue to live a syncretistic life, which means that you can hold hands with the world and just reach up and grab God a little while and you can walk the road together. That is often what is taught as being what being a disciple of Jesus is. Just go to church and sing a few songs and, and say, yes, you, you, you love Jesus and that's all that it takes. But I want you to understand, such a message is a watered-down version of what it really truly means to be a disciple. Friend, the good news of the gospel, which calls men, women, boys, and girls to follow Jesus in discipleship is a costly gospel. In fact, it cost Jesus his very life on the cross where he suffered and died in the place of sinners so that they could be free from their penalty of sins. And listen, while that grace and that mercy, while they are free to you and they cannot be bought, they cannot be earned, it is nevertheless the height of biblical ignorance and heresy to say that his grace and mercy do not demand a life that is willing to turn from sin and pursue him and him alone. Friend, make no mistake about it. Repentance and faith requires breaking with the old life of sin, no matter the cost. We must let go of everything that stands in the way of following Jesus. So in this call of Levi, we have that 
So we've seen that Jesus' call to follow him is extended to even the most despised and willful outcasts and sinners. And then in Levi's response, we've observed that answering the call to follow Jesus requires abandoning the old way of living and pursuing him. Now, our text actually ends right there in verse 14. But the story doesn't end, right? The story continues. And in fact, the Lord willing, next week we're going to come back and pick right back up with that and go on down through verse 17. But I want you to notice this. What happens after this call is that Mark tells us that Levi actually threw a banquet in his house and underwrote the cost of that banquet in which he brings Jesus in as the honored guest. In fact, just peek ahead with me. I can't help it. Peek ahead with me at verse 15. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that's Jesus, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. I'll save the balance of that for later, but understand this. What we see here is that in his active following of Jesus, Levi immediately began engaging and impacting the lives of others who needed to benefit from the same gospel message that had radically changed his life. That actually leads me to the third point on your outline. The third point on your outline is this. Obediently following Jesus will result in a radical change that will impact the lives of others for Christ. So based upon what we have studied today, then what we can conclude is that Levi was, as I have titled today's sermon, an unlikely disciple. As John MacArthur inferred, he was perhaps the least likely disciple. Yet Jesus called out to him and changed his life forever. Some of you may have heard of the name Rosaria Butterfield. In the late 1990s, Butterfield was a radical feminist. She had earned her Ph.D. in English literature. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in the English department and in the women's studies program. Her academic interests were focused on feminist theory and gender-related issues dealing with homosexuality. In fact, Rosaria Butterfield was herself a practicing lesbian. In interviews, Butterfield described herself as an atheist. She described herself as one who had decidedly rejected her religious upbringing and what she perceived to be the superstitions and the illogical tenets of the historic Christian faith. In her words, she found Christians to be difficult, sour, fearful, and intellectually unengaged people. She writes, The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant, like an elephant's tusk. And no matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the, the name of Jesus commanded my pity and my wrath. Stupid, pointless, and menacing. That's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus. But Rosaria Butterfield's negative image of Christians would radically change when a local pastor named Ken reached out to her, engaged her, befriended her, and along with his wife, Floyd, they introduced her to a compassionate Christian community that was firmly convinced of and committed to the truth of the Bible. 
And over time, as Rosaria Butterfield read the Bible and engaged with those compassionate and committed Christians, the Lord began to change her heart. He began to bring conviction to her life. And then she writes this. She says, one ordinary day, I came to Jesus open-handed and naked. And in this world, world of worldviews, the war of worldviews, she says, Jesus triumphed. Butterfield became a follower of Jesus, but I want you to know she honestly describes her conversion as a train wreck because she says it cost her everything. She paid the high cost of relationships, both, both professionally and personally. She lost credibility in her profession. Yet through it all, she says, the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Today, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is a pastor's wife. She's a full-time mother and speaker. She's the author of a book entitled The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which details the experiences of her journey to Christianity. Since her conversion, Rosaria Butterfield has been instrumental in leading many to the Lord. She counsels men and women on the truth of the Bible's teaching regarding human sexuality. She also counsels Christians regarding how they can compassionately and honestly engage others who hold the beliefs and who practice lifestyles she once held and practiced while at the same time holding true to the unerring truths of Scripture. I share Rosaria's story with you this morning, not because I want to exalt her, but because her testimony is another example of an unlikely candidate receiving God's grace and mercy. And as the title of her book suggests, she is an unlikely convert. But the truth of the matter is, if all of us honestly assess our lives, every last one of us are unlikely converts. All of us are sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, none of us deserve anything but God's judgment and His condemnation and wrath. But the Scriptures testify to us that God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, the same Lord and Jesus who called Levi the tax collector to become one of His disciples was the same one who eventually went to the cross of Calvary and died in that man's place so that he could be saved from his sins. And he died in all sinners' places who will confess him and believe in him and trust in him. Therefore, this morning, I do not point you to Levi, the unlikely disciple. I don't point you to Rosaria Butterfield, the unlikely convert, and I do not point you certainly to me, the unlikely preacher and pastor. Rather, I have come today to simply point you to the only one who is worthy of your attention and worthy of your worship. Jesus Christ, who looks at you and bids you to do the exact same thing that he bid Levi to do and that the scriptures teach us, and that is he bids us to repent of our sins, trust in him, and then follow him. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. 
Listen, friend. No matter what lies in your past, if you will obediently follow him through repentance and faith, Jesus will change your future and he will use you to impact the lives of others to the glory of God. By the way, I mentioned briefly early on in the sermon that Levi is more commonly known as Matthew. And if you turn back just a couple of pages from where you are in your Bible, you'll see he's the author of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's name actually means gift of God. Consider this. The same man who had at one point in his life earned his living by taking from others, by stealing from them, by cheating his fellow countrymen. Well, he ultimately became the man who ended up pinning the gospel account that was written specifically to introduce his own countrymen to the greatest gift God ever gave. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Friend, that's what the Lord does. He changes Levi's into Matthew's. He changes people's lives. Just as my friend from my high school class reunion reminded me, God truly can change people's lives. He changed Levi's life. He changed Rosaria Butterfield's life. He changed my life. And friend, He can and will change yours too. You may be thinking, well, preacher, you... You don't know what all I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the things that I've involved myself in the past. You don't know the sin that I'm actually involved in right now. And you're right, I don't. But God does. And I want you to know this. In His mercy, He offers you forgiveness. And in His grace, He offers you a new beginning. All you may be able to do today is to focus on what's happened to you in your past or what's going on in your life right now. But the Bible tells us that when we are in Christ, we are made new. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that through faith and repentance, old things are passed away and behold, all things become new. The Bible also tells us this, that those who believe in Christ are created in Him as His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Friend, I do not want you to leave this place today thinking that you are past hope and past help. The gospel bids you to repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and follow Him. And if you will do this on the authority of God's Word, I tell you that He will change your life not only now, but for all eternity. And this morning as I close, I want to say a few things to those who may have children or parents or siblings or friends who from all outward appearances have turned their backs on God and on the Christian faith. Perhaps you've tried to witness to them. Perhaps your heart is broken over their hardness of heart. Well, if so, recognize this truth. God still can and does change lives. He can and still will forgive and save. And therefore, be encouraged be encouraged that His grace extends to even those who up to this point have lived self-centered lives that are opposed to His grace. And continue to pray. Pray fervently that they will bow their hearts and bow their lives before the Lord and repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, be assured of this truth. God really does change people's lives.
because this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.